And so Paul, he's making it abundantly clear, I am not talking about those areas that are absolutely black and white and clear with respect to my word. I'm talking about the gray areas. I'm talking about those nuanced disagreements where it's not abundantly clear what scripture is saying. But the ultimate authority is when the Bible says jump, we say how high. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Hello, my name is Landon Hitchcock. I've been attending Gateway for around 10 years. Today we'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know, as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge, Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat sacrificial foods. They think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But the food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall." If you haven't grabbed your Bible yet, I would love for you to do that and to find 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, as I normally encourage you to do, I just love for you to have the Word of God in front of you, even though it's up on the screen. Um, so if you got a smartphone, you got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we got some in the lobby, feel free to go and grab one. Um, while you're looking for that, I just wanted to very quickly share with you as a congregation, I just want to say thank you for the way that you've leaned in over the course of these last nine weeks. I asked a lot of you, I asked for more time in the preaching ministry so that we could uh, stick handle to the best of my ability and with God's help some incredibly challenging and nuanced topics and you have been just so encouraging so I just wanna say thank you for that. Today we're picking back up on the book of 1 Corinthians, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter eight. And uh, I shared with Julie this past week, it's not like the topics moving forward are going to get any easier, uh, because all of the rest of 1 Corinthians is about addressing specific questions, challenges, and angst that this little church is navigating, and they're on the verge of splitting in two on account of these questions. You might have even noticed the very beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, it said two words. It said, now about, just two words, now about. And that happens six times from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 until the end of this book. And all of this means he's addressing specific questions that this little church has written to him about. They're saying, help us, we're all struggling with each other, we're banging our heads on each other, we're fighting with each other on these issues. Help us, Paul, to navigate these incredibly difficult and complex topics. So every time you see now about, he's addressing one of those questions. And today, we're gonna be looking at the topic of food. 
Why is food so incredibly difficult for Christians in the first century? Well, it's because there's a ton of religious baggage that's attached to the topic of food, who you associate with, how the food is consumed, how the food is prepared, all those types of topics, and they're really struggling with it. In fact, you might not know this, but the vast majority of books in the New Testament address the topic of food in some way, especially the book of Romans and the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I wanna show you why. Throughout Rome, and especially in the city of Corinth, Everyone was deep into religion. You would never ask a question, hey, hey, are you religious? Instead, you would ask a question like, what religion are you a part of? That's the question that you would ask. They were a polytheistic culture, much like India is still to this day. Everyone is steeped in religion, and there's a God for everything. There's a rock God, a sun God, a moon God. There's the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility and sexuality. There's a God of water, a God of the ocean, a God of land, a God of fertile crops. There's gods for absolutely everything, and they are steeped in this culture. And because of that, everything you did was caught up in these pagan rituals and religious practices from the gym that you went to to the meat market that you attended to sitting down and sharing a meal with family and friends everything was steeped in these pagan rituals and worship practices and it's a really difficult question for a Christian to say how do I navigate that kind of world how do I live in that space and so I just want to help you picture this scene in your own mind by um, talking about three characters. So let's just look at this for a second. Imagine if you were a young man who was a part of this church in Corinth. Let's just call him Jim. And Jim was a Gentile. He's about 35 years old. And for the first 30 years of his life, he was caught up in these pagan worship practices. Every time he went out fishing, he would come back in and he would take a couple of the fish that he got from last night's catch and he would make a sacrifice to the god Poseidon for smooth waters and for the catch that he had received. And then they would go home and they would enjoy a good meal, the fish with family and friends. And before they ate and before they drank, they would raise their cups to the god Apollos and they would pay tribute to him and then they would drink together. And then throughout the week, Jim, he had a tiny little farm, nothing significant, nothing special, couple sheep, couple goats. And with relative frequency, he would go to the temple of Aphrodite. And there he would pay homage and pray that Aphrodite would uh, bear fertile soil in his crops and in his marriage. And the way that this would happen is first, he would go and be with a prostitute. And then after that, he would take one of his sheep, and unlike the way the people of Israel did it, where they would consume the entire animal, they would just take a couple of pieces of the hair of the sheep or the goat, and they would burn that, and then they would barbecue the whole animal. A third would go to Jim and his family. A third would go to the priests. And because there were so many sacrifices, the priests didn't eat all the meat. And another third would then go to the temple restaurant and then to the meat market. So if you can picture this in your mind, you got the temple of Aphrodite, then you got a restaurant, then you got the market, they're all right there. They're all kind of tied up in all the same stuff. And here's Jim. He's a recent convert to Christianity. And he has made a conscionable note to himself that he will never go back to that place ever again. That was tied to his old life. His disobedience from God. Something that he wants to steer clear of. He wants no part in that at all. But how do you live in that sort of world in which um, going to Costco for us today or going to McDonald's for us today, all of it is tied up in the worship of a pagan god? See, another thing you have to understand about this culture was even if all the meat wasn't sacrificed to a pagan god, there would be priests who would come around at the meat market and they would bless all the produce and all the meat because they had this belief that evil spirits would come in and out of the world and they would rest upon things, especially food. And so they would bless all these things so the evil spirits would flee because otherwise you might consume that and then you'd be filled with an evil spirit. 
And so pretty much everything that you consumed if you were living in Corinth was blessed by a pagan priest or it was part of some pagan ritual or practice. How do you live in that kind of world if you're a Christian like Jim? So here's my question for you. What advice would you have for Jim? Stop eating? You know, or, or maybe like, um, like some of our, our friends who are a little bit off the grid, that you just kind of start eating your own fruits and vegetables that you have grown in your own backyard and you don't associate with anyone else, right? You live kind of like an Amish community. We can't be part of the world. We can't do that. And so we shouldn't take part in any of those things. We should disassociate ourselves entirely. And that's the way that Jim feels. Let's add another character to the story. Let's call her Sally. Sally is a Jew, and you might recall a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the book of Leviticus, and we were talking about the three different laws that they were following, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial laws. And what we discovered is that these first two, the ceremonial and civil laws, have been done away with on account of the sacrifice of Jesus. Moral laws are timeless laws that Christians still follow to this day, but part of the ceremonial laws was you had to follow the kosher laws that were found in the book of Leviticus, which was don't eat certain kinds of meats. So Sally has been steeped in this for decades, and now she steps over the line to follow Jesus. She realizes that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews, the one that they had been waiting for, but still, she had been living her entire life saying, you can't have T-bone steaks, you can't have bacon, you can't have shellfish, don't eat that. If you want to obey God, you can't eat that stuff. And then one day she can, and so she's struggling with that and what it looks like to live in this world in which she can finally eat that food. But not only that, all this meat that they're eating is from the meat market next to the pagan temple, next to pagan people. And that adds the second challenge for Sally. Remember the Jewish mentality before Christ was that holiness was defined as distance from sin. Distance from sin. And so we talked about the difference between the Pharisees' plan and God's plan. The Pharisees and the people of Israel, they said, here's what we got to do. We got to cut off those who are far from God. We have to disassociate ourselves from evil people. And what does the meat market represent? Pagan priests, pagan food, pagan people. And I can't be a part of that. I can't associate with that whatsoever. And so she doesn't want to be in that environment either, but for different reasons than Jim. And then there's a third character. We'll call him George. George is from out of town. Uh, he followed Paul on his first missionary journey. He didn't grow up in Corinth. He doesn't, he's not really familiar with all the pagan worship practices, and he's a Gentile, not a Jew, so he doesn't have that baggage of the ceremonial laws. And so when he goes to the meat market, here's all he sees. Half-off T-bone steaks. Like, who doesn't like that? They got Meat Eater Mondays. They got Taco Tuesdays. They got Wing Wednesdays. I love the meat market. I go there and I get a good meal and I go home. And so here's the scene. Here's the scene. Jim, he's walking through Corinth and he makes his way to the temple of Aphrodite. And he reminds himself of the pledge, the commitment that he made to never climb up those cobblestone steps ever again. Never to go to that place Never to enter into that temple because of everything that he did in his former life. And he said, I can't go there. And so he's reminding himself of that in this moment, making a renewed pledge never to go to that place. But on this particular night, to his shock and horror, there he sees George enjoying half-off wings, hanging out with the pagans, hanging out in this meat market right next to the temple, and he is horrified. But he doesn't want to make a scene, so he'll wait until Thursday night at Life Groups. So here's George, here's Jim, and here's Sally, and they all just so happen to be in the same group together, and they, they enjoy a good meal together, they enjoy some pleasantries, and then the life group leader inevitably says, hey, so an anything special happened this week for anyone? And Jim pipes up, somewhat sheepishly at first. He said, friends, as you all know what my former life was like, I was walking through Corinth, and I went to the, just aside from the temple of Aphrodite, I reminded myself of the way that I had been unfaithful to my wife. 
the things that I used to do, and I made a renewed pledge never to go to that place ever again. But George, I'm not trying to call you out or anything, but I could swear I saw someone just like you at the temple the other night. He goes, yeah, I was there for half off wings. Man, they serve a good meal. He said, are you kidding me? You went to that place? That's so anti-God. He said, I wasn't in the temple. I was just at the meat market. What's the big deal? And then Sally pipes in. She says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're in the temple or not in the temple. Do you not know that all the meat at the temple is blessed by pagan priests? with pagan people in a pagan environment, all that meat is contaminated. None of that is holy any longer. We can't go there. And then Jim pipes up. He says, that's not the reason why I'm angry. I'm not angry because he's hanging out with people. He should hang out with people, but he shouldn't associate himself with the temple. That's the reason. That's the problem. And then all three start yelling at each other, going for the jugular. So we have a problem in the first century church. In First Church of Corinth, they are struggling. What do they do when they have all this different religious baggage associated simply with eating meat? And we thought COVID was hard. My goodness. So look at the practical questions that this church was probably thinking about with respect to the topic of food. Jewish Christians were thinking about this. They were thinking about all the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Can Christians eat meat that was expressly prohibited in the Old Testament? Was that permissible or not? Still struggling with that. Other Jewish Christians were thinking about holiness code and being set apart, right? So can Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians? Even the Apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter, Rocky, for not associating with Gentile Christians while they ate. And he said, don't do that. You should associate freely with Gentiles as you eat. So still, they're banging their heads on these things. Can Christians eat or associate with non-Christians? Gentile Christians are thinking about questions tied to matters of conscience. So may Christians eat meat that just so happen to be sacrificed to idols. Like, we don't believe it. They're worshiping a god of stone. We don't believe in that. So can we eat the meat or can't we eat the meat? What if they were uncertain about the origin of the meat, where it came from? Like, maybe we don't know if it was sacrificed or if it wasn't sacrificed. Is it okay? Is ignorance bliss? And then thinking about environments. So what if the meal was in a pagan temple? Can we eat it there? But what if it's in the meat market? Or what if we're eating the meat at home with friends? What if I'm eating it by myself? Are those things okay? How do we navigate this world that we live in? So here's a question for you. Um, By a show of hands, how many of you had to deal with the question of whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple this week? Oh, man, zero, totally zero. And that's interesting. So, like, we know that it's no longer an issue for us today. Does that mean that this topic is now obsolete? It no longer matters? Should we skip 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and 10 on account of it no longer being applicable? I would like you to see that this is incredibly relevant to our lives today. It's very similar to what we looked at last week when we talked about the three commitments that every single Christian should make. It goes like this. The first one is, how is God calling me to walk with him in obedience and discipleship? Number two, how is God calling us to walk with one another as a community of faith? And then number three, how is God calling us to engage in the world that he loves? And we have to consider all three, not just one, not two, but all three. Because if you only look at number one and not number two and three, and you say, okay, I just got to follow God's law. I got to be obedient to his law. And I have to disassociate myself from sinful people. We're going to live like the Amish community. We're going to disassociate ourselves from the rest of the world. But if you only ask the third question, how do I be in the world? How do I engage with the world? But we're not concerned with obedience to God's word. Then we're going to be in the world and of the world. And they're not going to see Jesus in us. We're just going to act like everybody else. And so we have to ask all three, always all three questions. And in a nutshell, that's what this chapter is all about. Those three questions. What do we do when we live in a culture that doesn't believe that this book is authoritative, trustworthy, and true? What do we do when we live in a culture and in an environment that doesn't have the same worldview and assumptions that we carry? 
How do we live in that kind of place? What do you do in areas where one Christian goes, it's cheap meat? Nothing wrong with that. They're worshiping pagan gods that don't exist. I believe Jesus is the one and only God. And someone else says, that's so wrong. How can you possibly do that? That's anti-God. What do you do in an environment where someone says, you're totally wrong for doing that, and the other person says, you're wrong for thinking it's wrong? What do you do in those sorts of environments? And so I'd like to propose to you that 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is incredibly relevant and applicable to many of the things that we're still banging our heads on as Christians today. How to address topics that are tied to matters of conscience and what to do when Christians disagree. Christians have strong disagreements with each other from time to time. Are you aware? Anyone? We get in those environments. We struggle. We seek to obey God's word. We disagree on the nuance, how far that line is. Can you go this far? Can you go this far? Can you go this far? And we disagree with one another on very practical things. So what does it look like today? What are some examples of the disagreements that we have today? I'll just share a couple of practical examples from my own life. I'm sure you have many of your own. But here's just three from me. For me personally, the consumption of alcohol has been a huge topic in my life. On my dad's side of the family, marriages have been torn apart on account of the misuse of drinking. And my great uncle and my own father have passed away on account of their misuse of alcohol. And so because of that, I have some baggage that's tied to that act, some difficulty whenever it comes to the topic of drinking, because I've seen the way firsthand how it has absolutely destroyed families and the lives of individuals. And because of that, I have a heightened sensitivity to that topic. Another topic for me, I, I remember uh, when my parents separated, my mom took us to a church that thought Halloween was from the devil, and you should not associate whatsoever when it came to Halloween. And so instead of Halloween, we celebrated what was called a Hallelujah Harvest Carnival. And at the Hallelujah Harvest Carnival, you would dress up as a Bible character, you would bob for apples, and then afterwards, you would go outside to the trunks of cars, and you would take candy out of the cars and put it in your bag. And I remember as a nine-year-old kid going, isn't this Halloween? <laughs> so you can do it in the church parking lot, but you can't do it in your own community. Okay, that, that's the rule. All right, I don't know. I'm nine, right? I, that's the rule. That's what you can do. That's what you can't do. It seems weird to me, but Okay. And then by the age of 12, uh, my mom, my brother, and I, we moved from Newfoundland to Belleville, Ontario, and it was the first time I was a part of a Christian school. And I remember the first controversy in the school at that time, and those of you who are my age, you probably remember this, it was the question on whether or not middle school Christians could read Harry Potter. Is that allowed? Are you allowed to do that? I see some parents nod their head. I, I remember this. I'm struggling with that. And so in this school, the decision was made, Christians cannot read Harry Potter because there's witches and wizards. Wizards are bad, except the ones written by C.S. Lewis. Oh, and J.R. Tolkien, those ones are okay. But other wizards, totally bad. You can't read them. And we struggled and we disagreed with each other. And I'm sure if I polled this whole room, some of you would disagree with others of you on this particular topic. And so Christians have disagreements. All sorts of disagreements are alive and well today. Are they not? Do you get the vaccine or don't you? Do you wear a mask or do you not wear a mask? Do you drink or don't you drink? And if you drink, how much can you drink and with who? Do you attend that wedding or do you not attend that wedding? What about tattoos? What about ear piercings? What about Halloween? What about all our various forms of entertainment? What should we watch? What's the line? R or 13 or PG? I remember when I was a little kid, my parents were separated. So um, when I was 12 years old, I went and I visited with my dad, and I watched The Blair Witch Project. Any of you seen that movie? It's horrific. And then I watched The 13th Warrior. All these R-rated films. And then I went home to my mom, and she just finished reading Dr. Dobson. 
And because of that, I couldn't even watch George of the Jungle because it was PG and my mom wasn't in the room with me and you need parental guidance to watch George of the Jungle. I'm like, my goodness, I don't know. Even in my own house, we're struggling with this. Where's the line? How do we live out our faith in fear and trembling? Parents, when do you give your kids a cell phone? What sort of restrictions should there be on it? What should they be able to read or to watch and when? I see so many parents smiling right now. This is fun. (laughs) From the food we eat to the way we spend our money to the language we use, the shows and the movies we watch, the books we read, the people we hang out with, we have to ask ourselves those three questions. Where's the line with respect to God's word? How do we live this out in community? And how do we engage in God's world that he loves? How do we do this well? These are sincere questions that this little church is grappling with because they want to obey God's word. And so do we. So do we. So Paul says, let me show you a chapter that's about meat to foreign gods, but more than that, let me show you how to think about issues just like this one. So let's read once again 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 4 to have this fresh in our mind once again. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That was a slogan in the first century among Christians. And that there is no God but one. That's in reference to the most important biblical teaching to Jewish Christians at that time. It's called the Shema, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Every single morning, they would recite together as a family, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. And in this particular passage, Paul is using the Shema to, reve- to reveal to Christians that Jesus is the manifestation of everything you've ever learned in the book of Deuteronomy. He's the fulfillment of the Shema. So we need to uphold God's word. We need to love his word and to treat it as ultimate and author- the ultimate authority in our lives. And so he continues. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one, Jesus Christ through whom all things have come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols, that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, think about Jim again, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we uh, do not eat and no better if we do. So Paul says, Thank you so much for writing about these gray areas. Let me remind you that there is one God and one alone, and his name is Jesus Christ, and we should yield ourselves to him. We should submit to him in everything that we do, in everything that we say, in our interactions with people. But there's some barriers that we need to consider. So here's an image I want to kind of just ingrain into your mind. Have you ever gone bowling with the bumpers up? Anyone? Anyone here? Isn't it fun? Has anyone done this before? All right, not so many hands. But I think this is fun. You should give it a try from time to time. And so let's look to the next slide for a second. With respect to every single person in this room who is a Christian, we think, I I think it would be helpful to think about bowling with the gutters up. And some of you, you don't have to consult those barriers very often. So the way that you live your life, it kind of goes a little bit like this. Maybe just a couple of times. You had to consult those barriers as you try to live the straight and narrow with respect to your walk with Jesus. And others of you, no offense, but you know, you're breaking records with respect to how often you are consulting the edge before you get to that final spot. You just don't have the same sort of gifts as on this side. But with respect to both, we are trying to not live in the gutter. See what I did there? So good. We're trying to be obedient to God's word so that we can live on the straight and narrow. 
And so with respect to this teaching, Paul says, there's two barriers I want you to be thinking about every single time you're dealing with matters of conscionable objections. Every time you're trying to discern, can I do this? Should I do that? You should be thinking about two things. First thing, which I put in your note sheet, is a love for God's command in his word. Love for God's commands in his word. And so Paul, he's making it abundantly clear. I am not talking about those areas that are absolutely black and white and clear with respect to my word. I'm talking about the gray areas. I'm talking about those nuanced disagreements where it's not abundantly clear what scripture is saying. But the ultimate authority is when the Bible says jump, we say how high. That's the first barrier. And then the second one right on the heels of that is a deep love for my neighbor. And so you might recall in the New Testament, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And guess where he goes? He goes to the Shema. He says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then he also consults Leviticus 19 and he says, and the second one which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. These two are the greatest laws of God's word and upon which all the laws and all the prophets hinge. And so with respect to our lives, we should be thinking about God's word and a love for our neighbor. Loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, loving our neighbor as ourselves. These two are the greatest laws with respect to conscionable objections. And so then Paul, he makes clear for us to understand what he is and is not talking about. Look at verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if some with a weak conscience see you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, by the way, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound the weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Circle, highlight, underline. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul says, the freedom you now have in Christ isn't just to do whatever you want. There's a couple questions you now have to ask, namely, how might my actions build others up around me? And a second equally important question is, are my actions causing others to stumble and fall? Even if I have the freedom to do it. Even if God permits me to do that, and it's kind of one of those ambiguous gray areas, if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble and fall, I shouldn't do that. That is incredibly practical. So let's look at these two groups of people that Paul identifies here. I put it this way in your note sheet. Who's at Gateway and how should we treat them? Who's here at Gateway and how should we treat them? Here's the first group. A truly knowing Christian. And this is a Christian with a free conscience. Now, it's really important. Notice I didn't say better Christian. The Apostle Paul, he's already revealed to us, you're no better if you eat the meat or if you don't eat the meat. That's not what it's about. It's about someone who's seeking to obey God's word with their entire lives. And so there might be certain areas in which you have a sensitive conscience or you have a free conscience. And either way, it's not better, it's not worse, but in this situation, whatever it is, it is someone with a free conscience. And I'm gonna use alcohol again because I think it's very practical when we think about this. Some members of Gateway, right here, you have grown up in a home where alcohol was in the house, but it wasn't abused. You saw your mom or your dad have an occasional glass of wine or a beer with friends. It was always in moderation. And so you see where the line is. It has been clearly laid out for you. You know where that line is. And so you don't have any sorts of experience or religious baggage that's tied to the act. And yet you can imagine someone on the other side of the issue saying, like, I just don't think that's right for me. And I don't want to be in that sort of environment because I've been struggling with alcohol for the last 20 years of my life. And so that leads to the second real person. And they're at Gateway too. This is the truly weaker Christian. And not weak in our sense of the word, but someone with a sensitive conscience. With a sensitive conscience. 
Their conscience is troubled by certain things that either they have personally experienced or they have assumptions that are tied to particular behaviors where they say clearly that's not of God because if you go there, you'll probably go there. If you do that, you'll probably do that. And if you hang out with someone like that, you have to navigate those types of questions in a very gentle way. So a couple examples. A former alcoholic who's five years sober and they're gonna see drinking differently than other Christians. Or a former gambler who's trying to live in the straight and narrow, they're, they're gonna see even the most casual of card playing differently than most Christians in this room. Or a new convert to Christianity who is Jewish is probably gonna have a much harder time eating a Baconator at Wendy's than most of you. And the list can go on and on and on. So you can see how practical and nuanced this is with respect to Paul's teaching. And so let's, let's think again of George and Jim and Sally. George has no history, no baggage whatsoever when he goes to the meat market. He's not in the temple. He's in the meat market. He's going to eat a T-bone steak. He's going to go get some wings. And he has no conscionable objection to that. His conscience is free and clear, no concern whatsoever. And yet for George and for Sally, their conscience is weak. Their conscience is sensitive to that. So what's the practical teaching? I put it this way in your note sheet. The tie goes to the spiritual sibling with the sensitive conscience. The tie goes to the spiritual sibling with the sensitive conscience. Paul would say to George, hey, if you want to eat a T-bone steak in the comfort of your own home, go for it. But if you're hanging out with George and Sally, don't do that lest you cause them to make negative assumptions or to fall into sin, especially for Jim who might associate that with, okay, I can be a Christian and go to the temple. That's okay, I guess. I wasn't aware of that. And then he'd fall back into sin. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. And so the principle, according to Paul, with someone who has a free conscience is this, put aside your freedom. Put aside your freedom for the sake of your neighbor. And so the practical advice, if you're the strong Christian, then you must bear the weakness of the weak. You must give up your rights for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. And so if I'm around someone else, let's just say, who is struggling with alcohol and we're gonna go camping together, we're just gonna make the decision, no booze on the camping trip. Even though I have the freedom to do that, we're not, we're not gonna do that on this trip lest we cause you to stumble and fall. So the tie always goes to the brother or sister with the sensitive conscience. And then we're gonna see more on this next week, but I want you to see how Paul ends this entire section. Look with me if your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. He ends this whole section this way. He said, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law. So he's still uplifting the word of God. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, again, those with uh, sensitive consciences, I became weak to win the weak. Indeed, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, that's short of sin, I might save some. So to that practical question, may we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul gives incredibly clear teaching. He says, yes and no, and maybe it depends. So you might be saying, Justin, like, A, we're not dealing with meat sacrificed to idols, and B, what are the principles that I can glean from this in my own world today? I'm glad you asked. That's where I'm going next. So four questions to ask yourself when discerning your freedom. And I wanna walk through them very intentionally together. I would encourage you, rip this out of your uh, Bible study plan or put it up on your fridge or do whatever, but have this deep in your heart with respect to Paul's uh, practical teachings. Four questions you can ask yourself. Here's the first one. With respect to God's word, ask this. Is fill in the blank the behavior Whatever it is, right, wearing masks, eating meat sacrificed to idols, 
drinking uh, with a neighbor, but in moderation, whatever it is, is it a decision that causes me not to obey God's commands? And if the answer is yes, then you need to stop, right? You don't even need to consult the rest of the questions. If you are, by doing that action, disobeying God's word, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not ask any other questions. If you're deviating from God's word, you don't need to ask anything else. But if the answer is no, no, I, I don't think there's anything that I'm doing with respect to this behavior that's causing me to disobey the word of God, then you proceed to the second question. Second question is this, is that behavior a decision to unintentionally harm my neighbor? And so again, we can think about George and Sally and Jim, and uh, George invites all of them to his house, and uh, they're about to enjoy a meal, and they ask, where was this meat sourced from? I I got it from the temple. And suddenly their conscience is seared on account of your actions. And so even though Paul says, you're free to eat that meat, in this specific environment, you are not. You are not. Because it runs the risk of causing harm to your neighbor. And then if you say no to both of them, no, it's not gonna cause harm to my neighbor, and it's not contrary to God's word, you proceed to the third question. Is that behavior a decision which results in providing a stumbling block against those with weaker or more sensitive consciences? And this, my friends, is the most difficult question because in all likelihood, you have people on both sides with a sensitive conscience. And more often than not, because we live in an age of polarization, an age of the the warification of our culture where people are on both sides of an issue and they have all this cultural baggage tied to all these different words or sayings or institutions that we're a part of, it's extremely uh, difficult to navigate. Like when I was serving in the US, I'll give you one example of this. To say the phrase, black lives matter, was filled with cultural baggage, filled with it. Like, why as Christians would we ever refrain from saying something like that? We should be able to shout that from the rooftops, and yet we felt like we couldn't because there was all this sorts of cultural baggage tied to what was happening in the United States at that time. And so there's so many examples that I could give you when it comes to these matters that our consciences are constantly feeling singed and seared on account of the baggage that we carry. So here's my only advice to you when it comes to this third principle. Try to do this in the context of relationships. Like when we're at Starbucks and we have a coffee in our hands so that people on the other side of the aisle, they understand what you are saying and what you aren't saying. And I recognize that's not always possible but it is in a church. It might not be out there in the world. You might have to stumble around and navigate this and be challenged with this, but we can do it here. As a covenant community, we can navigate those spaces if we lean in and we humanize other people the way that we want to be humanized. Three incredibly practical questions that we can ask ourselves. But then we get to the fourth question. And it's also really important because you could look at the first three and say, well, there's probably a couple things I could still do that aren't technically against God's word, but I'm not sure how beneficial they would be. So for instance, like is spending 12 hours a day watching the soap opera days of our lives contrary to God's word? Probably not. My mom and grandma watch that a lot. Uh, So like probably not, and yet the fourth question we always have to ask ourselves is this one. Even if it's permissible, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? That is such a key question to the Christian because you can find all sorts of permissions on things to justify your behavior, but at the end of the day, when you stand before God and you give an account of yourself, here's what I did with my time, here's what I did with my ministry, here's what I did with my money, here's what I did with my sexuality, you might be just like that person in Jesus' parable where you take that uh, gift that you have been given and you hide it in the sand. And you do nothing with it whatsoever. And Jesus, through Paul, says, I want you to make a contribution to my world. I want you to lean in. I want you to step in and be a threat to the kingdom of darkness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so we see what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. You say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. 
You say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So here's the principle I want to lay out before you. The kingdom-minded Christian chooses personal sacrifice. That's uh, sacrifice to God, sacrifice to my neighbor, sacrifice to the Great Commission over personal rights. My personal rights. See, Paul realized that following God isn't as much about how following God can bless my life, but how I, through my life, through Christ in my life, can bless others. Do you remember where we ended last week where we talked about the Old Testament motif versus the New Testament vision laid out by Jesus? Let's look at this one more time. The Old Testament vision was all about the nuclear family, bearing children, obedience in the land, and enjoying the tangible blessings of God. So if I obey God, then he will bless my life. Who bless me? And that's still alive and well in Christian culture today through the health and wealth gospel, through other images that we have in our mind that says, you know what, all I gotta do is obey God's righteous rules. He's gonna bless my family. He's gonna bless my life. That's enough for me. And then Jesus comes along. He says, no, it's all about the spiritual family bearing new spiritual birth with people you interact with that they would come to know Jesus and our devotion to the kingdom of God bearing eternal fruit in the world. That's the vision that Jesus wants us to have with respect to how we navigate critical issues in our day. So, is it permissible? Probably, but is it beneficial? In the way that you use your time, is it beneficial? Ask yourself that question. And after all of that, we see that Paul gives us two warnings with respect to extremes. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna go as quickly as I can through this. The first extreme that he outlines is excess liberty. Let me read Romans chapter six to you. It says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. And so Paul says, the grace of God is not a license to sin. It's not a license to sin. We should always ask ourselves that question. When God says jump, we say how high? How high, God? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to hang out with? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to invite to church? What do you want me to do? Ask those questions. And so the first extreme is excess liberty. Excess liberty. But right on the heels of that, Paul recognizes that there's another extreme that we need to watch out for, and it's especially prevalent in churches, and it is excess legalism. And we read of this in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So in this context, we have Jewish Christians who are taking all of God's laws, all of God's fences, and they're putting fences around his fences, and more fences around his fences. So let me give you an example of this. Now that I have four children, every time we go for hikes, I'm like on high alert with respect to where they're going, especially my youngest kids. And from time to time, we go up to high places, we see beautiful vistas, and there's a fence probably about 20 feet away from the drop-off with a big warning sign on it saying, do not go any further, drop off ahead. But as a parent, do you know what I wanna do? I wanna fence that fence. And I want to fence that fence, that fence, and I want to push them away and say, don't even go near that fence. And then I want to put like a little collar around their shoulders and their head so that they can't go any further. I want to protect my kids. And I think all of us as parents, we, we feel that angst where we want to fence God's fence. And it's for good reasons. We, we don't want to do any harm to our loved ones. We want to protect them. We want to keep them safe. And yet if we're not careful, friends, what we will do is create a culture of excess legalism and then your kids will become old enough and they'll walk over that first fence and they'll say, nothing happened. And then they'll walk over the second fence and they'll say, nothing happened. I guess my parents were just a little too concerned. And now they don't even know where the line is because we tried to fence God's fence. The best thing that we can do as spiritual parents as biological parents, as mentors, and as encouragers to one another is to remind ourselves of where the fence is and not to fence the fence, and not to fence the fence the fence. Otherwise, it just creates more confusion 
in the lives of those who are still discerning their faith. So one day, we will stand before God, our master, and he will say, give account of your ministry. Give account of your life, the way you used your time, who you hung out with, how you used your sexuality. In every aspect of your life, give an account of your ministry. And the desire of our hearts as Christians is that one day God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That's the guideline. And so Paul knew that these principles would not end all debates, right? We're still gonna grapple with things. We're still gonna disagree. We're still gonna bang our heads on things. And yet here's what we need to see. The only way that we're going to be able to do this is if we see the example of Jesus. So here's what I wanna end with today. I want you to see what Jesus did for us. When Jesus went to the cross, he was making one of the most negative evaluations of you and of me possible. Because when he died, he was saying, you are so lost that nothing less than the death of Christ, the Son of God, will save you. Nothing less. And that's a hard pill to swallow, that we were that weak, that we were that frail. And yet, at the same time, he was entering into our condition making himself vulnerable to us, sacrificing his own rights, his own liberty, his own freedom, so that we could be set free. Friends, we are called to be like Jesus. Even when we disagree, even when we have conscionable objections, we need to enter into that space the way that Jesus entered into ours. And in so doing, the Holy Spirit will continue to do great things through us. Maybe the Lord will invite in more people with weak or with sensitive consciences. People we disagree with. People banging their heads on things. People who disagree with you on things, heaven forbid. And if you find a person like that, put your arms around them and tell them you are in the right place. This church was built for people like you me. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.